This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Deitch. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. One guest this week, but an excellent one. Jason Kirk is a senior newsletter editor at The Athletic. He's a co-host of the popular college football podcast, The Shutdown Fullcast. And he's the author of a new novel, Hell is a World Without You. And we will get into all of Jason's endeavors on this podcast. And with that, I am pleased to be joined by Jason Kirk. Jason, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. You got it. Jason, this will be a great experience for you. Much much less listeners than the podcast you host and you are used to being on. So I appreciate appreciate you slumming down uh, to this one. For my listeners... Um, and Jason, you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, because I, you know, I am absolutely skiing in an area that I um, did not grow up in. You grew up in the evangelical, as you would describe it, Southern Baptist leaning to Baptist community in Georgia. Those churches shaped your life, and hell is a world without you is based on your experiences growing up. I imagine you get asked this a lot when you've done interviews on this book. But for those of us who did not grow up in the evangelical community, how would you describe your childhood and specifically your teenage years? So uh, I was raised in church. Um, it, it, it's a slight exaggeration to say around the clock, but uh, not that much of an exaggeration. It was, you know, we were in church for several hours, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, uh, various other times throughout the average week, uh, and then various other activities as well from week to week, depending on uh, the time of year, camps, pageants, who knows what might be going on. Um, and I was raised in a variety of Southern Baptist churches that veered from mega church, very charismatic. They had drum sets, for instance, to a little bit more uh, fundamentalist, no drum sets. Um, and it, it, it very all of it very steeped in conservative politics. Um, and as I grew up, uh, particularly my teenage years, just felt more and more drawn to the sense that like, I don't really quite fit here. Um, and it, it was, you know, at times it was, I, I really don't like the way that these um these political statements affect some of my friends particularly my lgbtq friends who were you know starting to come out at the time um i don't like the way that the young ladies my friends uh that their their bodies are talked about as as you know as as shameful um by the by the men in charge uh and i felt you know all sorts of doubts and and um guilt of my own and yeah at the same time uh those were my best friends, the friends I made in church. Um, that was the the you know 
the first truly loving community I found was just the group of teenagers that I grew up with in that world. Um, and we didn't quite realize it at the time, but a lot of us were sort of guiding each other out of that world. Um, and a lot of those people are still my lifelong friends. Um, I have, you know, some, some of my best friends I met in second grade at Southern Baptist private school. Um, and, you know, from there sort of pivoted, like pivoted all the way, you know, to the other extreme and, and in college declared myself a, a uh, you know, fully committed agnostic. I'm never thinking about any of that stuff ever again. As you can see that, that went great. Um, <laughs> Uh, but just a few years ago, I really started opening up things and going back and re-examining, um, which came about in part, funny enough, from talking with listeners of the Shutdown Fullcast, where we get very off topic at times. Um, and we've talked about religion at times on that show over the past decade. Um, and talking with listeners from all around the country, from various denominations, Midwest, you know, parts of, parts of Oregon, California, wherever, um, we keep finding these common memories that sound pretty insane to people who didn't grow up like us um but happened to so many people like the the example i always go back to because ultimately it was the one that inspired the writing of this book was a wednesday night in middle school when uh a group of adult men from the church burst into our you know our, our children's church um event and uh they were waving around rifles and it was a bit of theater that was designed to test whether we were truly committed to our faith, right? Like, were we so scared that we would say, I don't want to be a Christian anymore because these men are scary. Um, and it was revealed to be a skit. Um, and I just sort of didn't think about it for 10 or 15 years. And then once I just, I don't know, I remembered, remembered it and started talking about it. It was, people were like uh, telling me, like, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard, right? And to me, it was like, oh, what? That was, that was church. That was just normal church. And um Eventually, you know, I, I started to sort of square those things like, hey, people who grew up like me, I've heard versions of that story that are, you know, even more extreme than the one that I witnessed. And I've heard a whole bunch of other stuff, all sorts of other stuff that um, is uh, just as bizarre as that. And then at the same time, trying to square that with there's this whole other bubble of people who have no idea what we were up to. Um, so I just tried to write something that on the one hand represents people who grew up like me and says, Hey, we, we were never near anywhere near as alone as we, as we felt like we were. And at the same time, um, sort of explains that world to people who, who didn't grow up in it. Um, and to this point, I've heard, you know, so far from readers that, uh, that both of those missions, uh, seem to have been successful for, uh, for a lot of them, but yeah, it's a, it's a whole alternate reality that is kind of right under the noses of a whole lot of people, especially in America, I think. Yeah, it, um, it, I have heard you tell that story on other podcasts, and that's, I mean, it's, I don't even know if alarming is the right description of it. It's just, it's, again, it's something that, because my upbringing was so different, it's hard for me to wrap my head around, but um, it's unbelievable all the same. We will, as we get later on in this podcast, I do want to ask you some questions about sort of the connection between religion and college football, or at least sort of like how people feel about college football, which in many ways feels like religion. But, you know, I'm sure that you thought about this and I imagine you had, uh, people, um, you know, in your circle who discussed this with you, or maybe like people who sort of are like agent types, but you, it seems like very much, you could have written a memoir. You, you could have done this in nonfiction 
as opposed to a novel, but you made the decision to, to in some ways, you know, sort of fictionalize your upbringing. So what, why, why go that route as opposed to like a straight memoir? So it's, it, as soon as I started writing it, it came out as fiction, um, which I think I sort of attribute to, I took a lot of creative writing classes in college. And um, even as a young kid, I, I, I like to write stories. So despite working as you know a sports journalist a sports editor for uh for a number of years it came out as fiction and i didn't really analyze that decision much until kind of after it had been written you know and then you look back and like oh yeah uh like there's so much of 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 like my story spread around through these various characters in here so many things i witnessed there's uh fictionalized versions of it, it could why, why not just <laughs> why not just say it's about me um and i think what i settle on is on one level um, fictionalizing it is a way to sort of draw out how common a lot of this stuff is because I was able to sort of, the, the narrator um, treat as more than just me, I guess. There's a lot of other people's experiences in the narrator and the things he thinks, the things he says, the things he does. Um, there's plenty of things I don't have in common with the narrator, uh, but ultimately the, the the core feelings of like, this was how big of a misfit I was in that world, that much is very real. And then, you know, the other characters in this book, there's bits of me and all of them as well. And at the same time, each of them, I try to have, you know, feel relatable to a, to a different group who, who either grew up in or adjacent to this world. So there's that. And then there's also this sense of like, if I'd tried to write a memoir, I think I would have constantly hit this roadblock of like, I don't really think I'm that interesting, you know? Um, it would have felt like standing on a stage and pointing at myself when the story that I wanted to tell was more about look at this world and look at all the people who are in it, you know? Because um, even though I witnessed, you know, versions of almost everything that's in here, um, still it, it felt more like I wanted to tell a story that just represented a large group of people because there is bizarrely, um, little fiction that depicts this world from the inside and it's not like propaganda for this world like there, there's so much pro-evangelical fiction but it's all blatantly propaganda you know left behind god's not dead these movies that are like trying to win you over to that worldview there's so very little and there there is some to be clear and it's great kelsey mckinney another sports writer she wrote um a novel that's really great about uh about a, a similar world um but yeah, ultimately, I think I think it was the fiction was hey, you get to have a little bit of fun, you know, um, you get to like change names and make up character traits and stuff like that, uh, and then B, it's it's to try to just to try to make it a little bit less about me and a little bit more about everybody else, I guess. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And um, the reality is, like writing a memoir is a very very egocentric activity, and um, some memoirs obviously have been incredibly well done. But in itself, it it is sort of an exercise of egoism, and and I can understand those who would want to, um, you know, want sort of fictionalize it because then you're right, you could sort of have a little more liberty to to go beyond yourself. Um, one of the things, obviously, in doing my research and and checking out your book, you know, very clearly, your family were church going. People were reading the Bible every day. You know, the church is the sort of the the, the evangelical church is the sort of a the center of everything what i was curious about and in your own 
upbringing because you ultimately did find a career, a very successful one in sports and with college football as a big focus. For a lot of people, like sports is escapism. Even when they're growing up, if they really were in a bad situation, sometimes sports can be like the one thing that gave them some kind of light during the day. And so, you know, when you were 14, 15 or 16, like was college football a part of your universe or did you come to that later in life, like starting with college and stuff? I was a huge, I've been a huge sports fan, like all my life, um, played like Pop Warner football, played uh, church basketball, been an Atlanta sports fan, unfortunately. So there hasn't been too much escapism and joy in, uh, in, in following sports. Right. Sorry about that 28-3 thing. Yeah, it happens. It happens. It doesn't happen. It only happens to us, but you know. <laughs> um, yeah. So like I, the funny thing about sports is when you grow up in that world, it's, there is no escape ever. Like we were taught that the only athletes we should really revere were like the outspoken Christian athletes, hmm, um, you know, Kurt Warner, Mark Richt, Bobby Bowden, um, uh, Tom Osborne, you know, uh, AC green was, uh, AC green? Our... yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was like, you want to talk about a little bit of a letdown is like in, in 11th grade, you're, you're, you know, you're told that like, Hey, the, the, the model of masculinity and romance that you should aspire toward is AC green. And it's like, Oh man, I, <laughs> That, that guy waited a long time, you know, um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it, literally everything, including sports was processed through this sort of church filter um, and sports were considered a ministry. Like there's so many sports ministries, campus crusade has a, a sports wing fellowship of Christian athletes, um, which started as like a coaches association promise keepers ultimately sprang from um, Bill McCartney's right, association yeah. with, uh, yeah, with, with campus crusade. Um, the, uh, the, the, the Christian bodybuilders on righteous gemstone. Those are completely real. Those are based on real guys called the power team. Um, but yeah, sports and uh, this, this kind of evangelical Christianity, it's just, it's so enmeshed that honestly, going like you know going to college and getting into media and all that there was this honestly this sense of like sports is an is an escape but it didn't become an escape until after it escaped you know what i mean um because like when you're in there it's no it's just part of the exact same machine as everything else um i have one uh one more question about sort of your upbringing because again it's as someone who grew up in the new york city suburbs and then lived most of their life in new york city again it's just it's a very foreign world to me so I understand like, you know, you're in the middle of all this, your family is, this, you know, is, is part of this. And so as a kid, you don't really have many choices. You're, you're, you're sort of, you're following this stuff. Did you have any interactions with kids um, who would fall under like being agnostic or fall under being, you know, I don't know, um, another religion, uh, maybe not as devout as you were in their religion, but you know, the kind of kids that like I went to school, like went to public school with, it's probably not, I wish I could have asked that question more elegantly, but I guess what I'm trying to get at is, um, like how much of the outside world were you interacting with within your, this very, very, uh, world of yours? As much as I could possibly get away with. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> um, I, you know, snuck as much secular music as I possibly could. Um, 
as much as much hip hop and as and hard rock as I could possibly. Could you get, get away uh, with. like? Uh, could you sneak in like I don't know, uh, Tupac or or N.W.A. and stuff like that? Is up was up. I was as a Christian private schooler in I don't remember which grade. I got in. I I was sent to detention for uh, bringing in Machiavelli by Tupac. Yeah, <laughs> badge of, badge Tup- of honor there. Nice work. Tupac is a a dead on guess by you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm guessing the ninety. You know, I have the, I know the right. Yeah, yeah, I know yeah. the right decade. So. <laughs> I, the the principal he he was like I can't understand any of this but you're grounded anyway I remember that <laughs> so yeah it was always sort of this sense of like there is a much bigger world out there and I have access I mean there is the internet like you know, we were <laughs> been online my whole life so um, I found that as much as I possibly could uh, I was homeschooled in middle school so at that point it was basically just like ah I have you know a couple. Um, public school friends around the neighborhood. They're kind of my connection to the outside world. Um, And then uh, public school and high school. And at that point, you know, all of the things I'd been warned about uh, secular culture at that point, it's just, okay, it's all here. So prove it. Right. Um, And I'd been told to be afraid of agnostics, atheists, you know, uh, uh, people from various religions. I'd been told these people are bad and they don't like me and they want to hurt me. I've been told all this stuff. Right. And then, and after you know a year or two of public school, it's like hmm, these these people are exactly the same as anybody else. A lot of them go to church, you know, and, and a lot of them are like casual church people. A lot of them are hardcore church people, you know. It's um, there was uh, also this this dynamic where if you go to a mega church you also get a bit of a public school dynamic at a mega church because there's going to be kids who are just, they're just there to be there. They're, you know, right. there's going to be kids who are there to go along on the beach trip. They've never been to church before and they don't care about any of it. So the funny thing about going to a really big church is you're going to be exposed to a lot of worldviews just because they cannot possibly police hundreds of kids. You That's know? interesting. So I, I got probably a lot more glimpses of, um, other ways of thinking throughout then uh i definitely way more than i was supposed to according to uh the people who were constantly warning me against those things and you know ultimately it's uh ultimately it's a good thing whenever people can be uh exposed to you know to have a chance to make their own choices i guess yeah of course it's only a kick a jump a block it's only a serve it's only a tackle a run it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. All right. So I want to um, I want to talk about you and college football because you know your your work in the space, um, whether it's SB Nation or Banner Society or the shutdown full cast, full cast. You were at For the Win for a little bit, um, and now obviously with the Athletic, you know people in the college football space know who, who who know media people know who you are, and so you're a good person to ask that. You know, one of the the most remarkable things about college football, I think you said it earlier, is is just the 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 bond that people have with their whatever their school is or maybe the bond that they have with the sport for me like while i cognitively understand that and was very fortunate when i was at sports illustrated to go to um a very famous sec game uh the night game at lsu when alabama played so i got a real sort of education into it it still in some ways is very very foreign to me growing up in new york that like the the pull of it 
the fact that it feels very, very religious and there's so much fervor to it. Um, and it's different like than like what I grew up with, like people who love the Yankees or the Mets or the Giants. It's just I, I feel college football, the pull is different. And I feel like because I, w- I didn't grow up in a place where it was very important, I don't really understand like the pull. But you do. Like this is your world. So that is my long-winded way of asking you, why do you think college football has such a pull on those who are so passionate about the sport? I think there's a ton of reasons. Um, one, I mean, one that is will only apply to some um, college football fans, but obviously a lot of them is um, if they went to that school, then that's a super formative experience, and that's like an unbreakable bond. That you know, if your if your team's not doing well, then you kind of hope that bond can be broken. But guess what? It can't. And like you know, you don't. You can be raised as a Cubs fan or a Lakers fan or whatever, but it's not quite the same as four of the most influential years of your life were spent, uh, you know, on the Cubs campus, so to speak. <laughs> right. It's funny. Um, whereas if you're raised a Nebraska fan and then you go to school at Nebraska, like they got you. <laughs> um, so there's that. And then I think the, the, the regionality I think is a really big thing. Um, it's a thing that in pro sports doesn't really matter a whole lot, you know, and, and, he could win the Eastern Conference versus the Western Conference, but no one really cares which conference you win. Um, whereas in college sports, at least until um, uh, conference realignment finishes carving up the map, um, there's always been this sense that you have to, it's almost like high school where you have to win your state to advance. Like that's sort of the vibe in college, you know? And it just makes everything so much more intense where it's like, it's not just about beating you know, those bums in Dallas or Philadelphia, it's about beating your neighbor, you know? Um, and I think the, the way the map is so carved up is also a factor because, you know, if you're a, if you're a Seahawks fan, then, okay, so are the people in Idaho and Oregon, you know, it's this huge swath of the map. That's all Seahawks fans. Whereas, um, there's this intensity when you say, no, no, every one of those states is a battleground that will be split up. And, you know, all those people are opposed to each other and they all are making up reasons why uh, their neighbors are bad people <laughs> because of they're wearing different color shirts. It's also an, a much older uh, sporting association than anything but MLB, really. Like, you know, like we think of the, the NFL, like it's ancient, but college football is like so much more ancient exactly like, like yep. two generations older than you know than the nfl so it's so it's even more deep-seated and i think another thing is so much of college sports and college football in particular is uh it's kind of in these areas that pro sports didn't get around to until later like here in atlanta we didn't have um a uh, nfl mlb uh nba team until the 1960s we had pro sports um, we had uh, Negro League teams, but we didn't have, um, you know, the Atlanta Falcons didn't show up until the 1960s. And they, they probably shouldn't have because bad things happened once they started playing football. But um, but Georgia Tech was a, a legit big show in the 1910s. You know, the Georgia right. Bulldogs have been, you know, they've been they've been huge forever. Alabama has been huge forever. Um, and like it's a thing where it's, 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 it's kind of funny because it's the opposite of everywhere else in the country where the Falcons have to fight against college football because college football was here first. Um, and that's the total opposite of like Rutgers competing for attention in New York, I guess. <laughs> that's right. Um, okay. So uh, even that's, that's a, that's a, that's a well thought sort of explanation of 
fandom. And it gets me to what obviously I talk about a lot on this podcast, which is, you know, sports media related topics. And one of the things that we have seen in the last really, like really in the last 10, 15 years is the explosion of college football content. And particularly among like these big legacy places like ESPN and Fox, like how much money people are paying for the rights to that sport. We just saw obviously the incredible deal that the Big Ten got between, you know, um, NBC and Fox and CBS, ESPN just um, it's not formal yet, but, you know, it, there's like an agreement in place when it comes to the college football playoffs. I mean, we're talking, Jason, like billions of dollars for for this product now. And then obviously like a place where we work like The Athletic, look how many people are on our college football staff and look how much college football content has churned out. And obviously at other big places around the country, it's the same thing. It's not that college football is any kind of new phenomenon, but but I think there's a fair argument to be made that like the economics of the sport have just like blown up in the last ten years in terms of interest, and it's legitimately, in my opinion, the number two sport in the in the United States behind the NFL. And maybe NBA fans want to fight that, but I I think if you're being honest, I, I think it's college football. Why do you think that is? What why in the last like ten to fifteen years, like have we seen this explosion in your opinion? I think um, on one level that the media has sort of caught up with um, with interest because like, you know, for a long time we saw stuff like, you know, rivals message boards or or or, uh, or local message boards that nobody with a uh, um, digital media company had ever heard of or like literally hand delivered <laughs> um, uh, newsletters or, you know. Um, like there's always been this big economy, college football information economy that just sort of was in a different bubble than so much of um, big, I want to say coastal. That sounds like I'm like, you know, uh, demonizing people or whatever, but it's, it, it's different parts of the map. Um, so I think on one sense, it's kind of those two worlds finding each other. Uh, and so much of college football media <laughs> digitizing, I guess. And then at the same time, um, older media companies realizing like, oh my gosh, these these Southerners and Midwestern, Midwesterners really care a lot about this stuff. Like I, I remember in the 2010s um, at SB Nation, early on there, it was a DC media company. They were still, you know, still, still learning how the rest of the map worked. There was this sense that like, um, there are the big four sports. That's the thing I always heard growing up, right? There's the big four sports, NFL, MLB, NHL, NBA. Those are the big four. And I'm like, well, I'm I'm from Georgia. So I know that the big four sports include college football. Whichever one of the other four that you need to move out to make room, that is an accurate reflection of the actual interest, at least here in the United States. Um, and, you know, during the 2010s, it was proved, and I'm sure you see this kind of thing, you know, at various metrics all the time that like, and you just said it yourself, like college football is, no, it's, it's, it's either number three or number two, nothing is close to the NFL, but it is in the second tier without question. Um, and we see it in the TV ratings, end of your TV ratings every year. It's like NFL, 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 you know, the top 30 or whatever NFL. And then there's a college football game. That's right. There's more NFL <laughs> then there's college football. And it's like. It, it, it keeps sneaking up on people. And I think with, you know, massive playoff money and at least early this past season, the Deion Sanders effect of like celebrities watching a 3 a.m. Mountain West game because of Deion Sanders. Um, it is possible that more of the country, I think, is becoming aware of the interest that was already there. And that could draw in new fans, especially with the video game coming back um, this uh, this summer, the EA Sports game. Um 
so there's that. And then I think, you know, the playoff, yes, I, I do think it has greatly increased interest in the sport. Um, it has increased the number of fan bases that are able to keep telling themselves they have a shot at a national title, which is very important. Um, it's very important to feed hope, whether it's realistic or not. Like we've gone from, you know, a, a small handful to a, at this, you know, this time next year when, uh, when the playoff is up to 12, that means what 24 teams are going to think they have a shot, right? Cause not just 12, it'll be the next 12. That'll think, Oh, we were so close. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's those two things. It's just, you know, uh, overall trends of people, uh, realizing what's already there. And then the playoff has, has been a big game changer. And then, the, and before I get to newsletters, and that's where I want to finish up with you, because um, you're um, you're doing anti athletic. Uh, I think you're one of the sort of the forerunners when it comes to this stuff in the country. But the other thing about college football to me is that, again, as someone who grew up in a like a quote unquote pro town, like there are always sort of crazy characters that exist in professional sports. You know, I'm not going to name the litany of them, but there's always you know people do crazy shit in all these different sports or there's sort of adjacent crazy in all these different sports. But I must say, it feels like every program in some way, major program in college football has like a dose of crazy. That's not pejorative (laughs) per se. When I say crazy, like it's both good and bad crazy. So whether it's like Connor stallions at Michigan, um, which is kind of more humorous than anything else to Mm me, or, you know, the trees at tumors corner poison, which is not so humorous to me. But the thing is, like, every single school, it seems like, has, like, something like this, which I think is why your podcast is so popular. And I, I wish I could sort of put my finger on it, like, as to why why it attracts the crazy maybe more than any other major sport. Maybe it's because of the, like you said, the intense ties to the school. Maybe it's sort of cultural or regional. But that is something that's just – it feels like so – um specific or original to college football in my opinion compared to any other sport like no offense to like the nhl but like you know what i mean like there's not crazy in the nhl it's just (laughs) not the case but in college football every single year i would almost argue maybe every single week there's some crazy story that exists that becomes the talk of the country for like that day Mm -hmm. and that happens like every week so i guess i'm asking you even though Jason, you shouldn't have to answer this because who can answer this? But like, it's a why. Like, why? <laughs> My theory goes back to uh, most sports. Um, your team wins or loses, and it really has nothing to do with you. It's they they drafted well, they signed bad free agents, they hired the right coach. You know, it's it's factors that are completely out of your control. Um, you don't get to pick where your team drafts or whatever. But it, in college sports, we have this story that the more I care, the better my team will do. And the crazy part is to some extent, it's real. Um, I mean, we see it most starkly these days with NIL. If I donate to my school's NIL fund, they will spend that money to um, bring in better players and then maybe we'll win more. So my level of caring has affected how much my team wins. And we saw it even before NIL. Obviously, money's been changing hands for a very long time. Um, and you know, the more I'm able to tout my school's, um, uh, beautiful campus foliage and academic programs and, uh, the, the, you know, the, the lovely archways around our stadium and so on and so forth, the more likely recruits will, um, want to play for my, you know, play for my school. So like, there's always been this sense of, uh, it's on me to help my team win. Um, 
and you know people take everything to an extreme so they will absolutely take that to to an extreme like if if there was a way for if there was a way for nhl fans to um to yell loud enough to possibly sway a free agent's decision then i think we would see this crazy in pro sports as well you know Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, and the last topic I want to get to is uh, newsletters. You're the athletic senior editor of newsletters. Um, I am particularly fascinated by them. I think uh, they're both the present and the future for any media company that charges people when it comes to content. And I think for sports-centric companies, media companies, I should say, um, they're essential. Uh, Not just a singular newsletter, but... I would, if whether it's the athletic or anybody else, and the athletic obviously has multiple ones at this point, but but I think to not head down that road, you you end up really really hurting yourself because it is a direct connection between you and the reader, and in many ways perhaps even arguably a more direct connection to the reader than something that's on your app or site because like someone has to some someone has to give you their connection like via an email usually in this case. And then they have to open it. Like there's the open rate that exists. Like they have to literally click on it because they're interested in it. That's a real connection as opposed to passively, maybe like a link coming across them. So again, you're at the forefront of this and you've been at the forefront of this for a long time. Uh, do you share my, um, I don't know. I don't know if it's optimism. It's not the right do, do you share my belief like that this is not only sort of the present in terms of media consumption, but but also the future as we, as we head forward. Yeah, absolutely. This, um, this job at the athletic was the first one in sports media that I applied for after leaving Vox during 2020 when sports stopped. Um, and I think it was that turbulence of 2020 when so many people lost their jobs that made me think about like, all right, what's actually stable. Like if you want to cover sports, what is actually stable in this industry? And the thing I kept coming back to was like, well, nobody controls email. Um, Gmail, you know, tweaks itself every now and then, but email hasn't fundamentally changed in 20 years. Um, and you know, if, if Gmail disappeared tomorrow, well, you'd still be able to email people, you know? So like newsletters are very attractive for that reason. Sort of same as podcasts. No one controls podcasts, you know? Um, so there's that. And then there's the sense of, like you said, the, the, the like day-to-day um, connection with your readers. You don't have to wake up in the morning and think, I, I have to uh, write a really incendiary headline so that it'll hopefully stick on Google News or hopefully go crazy on Facebook or whatever. It's just, no, I already have my readers. Now I just have to make them want to remain my readers, you know? Um, and like that's the sense that like Chris Branch brings in every morning every night when he writes the pulse and then I edit in the morning and then we go over it in the morning. But um, And all of our other newsletters... New newsletter writers have as well is the sense that like these are already our readers hopefully tomorrow we'll have a bigger list of readers but these are the readers to um to inform and hopefully entertain when appropriate and uh and all that for today so it feels stable which is a, a very um 
It's an incredible word in t- in today's media landscape. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, email. I recommend it. So it's it's it is funny to to accurately describe it as I think a future of media when it's one of the oldest pieces of internet technology. Like it, we kind of had it right all along, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I will say, I give a shout out too to Chris Branch who writes the Pulse, which is the sort of the the flagship newsletter for the Athletic. And then one of the th- reasons, like Jason, I give him a lot of credit is that that newsletter is filled with voice. It's Chris's personalized um, kind of take on the things that are ha- that happened the previous night in sports and the things maybe you should read when it comes to the athletic. And that's a real key for me when it comes to newsletters is I don't want something that feels um, antiseptic. Like I want the writer's voice or the writer's POV like injected into that newsletter. And even if I don't particularly, let's say, love the writer or love the the POV, I still think that's smart. I feel like that because that it just feels like the one thing I want is I don't want an AI newsletter. Like I want to know that it's a human being behind it. And that's one thing I think Chris does really, really well. And he, I thought he, I think he does a great job. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which I particularly notice whenever Chris is on, on vacation and it's like, and it's, oh my gosh, he's so good at this. <laughs> it falls to you, right? Yeah. yeah that's when, a lot when, of work. When, when I'm filling in on a, on a section or whatever, it's, oh, Chris, please come back, <laughs> which means he's very valuable. Uh, and and the same thing goes for, you know, um, Zach Harper, Levi Weaver, Emily Olson, like all our other newsletter writers, they all, all have that, that uh, ability to sound like people. Um, which makes you think like, even if it's news that broke a couple days ago, you think, ah, my my friend Patrick Iverson is now here to tell me what he thinks about, you know, and yeah, that human connection is very key. Yeah. And by the way, you're seeing every, you know, all the major sort of outlets that still have, um, that still have resources in you know, the New York Times, Washington Post, et cetera. Uh, all they're doing is expanding their newsletter offerings uh, because clearly they're seeing the, the numbers that uh, that come from that. Jason Kirk is a senior newsletters editor at The Athletic, co-host of the popular college football podcast, The Shutdown Fullcast, and the author of a new novel, Hell is a World Without You, which we talked about at the top of this podcast. Jason, for people who want to check out the uh, novel, where can they get it? It is uh, everywhere, as far as I know. Um, we're trying to get it in some more libraries, so if it's not in your library, go ahead and request it. But uh, it, it should be available basically everywhere. Amazon, uh, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble, ebooks available at uh, shutdownfullbooks.com and everywhere else, too. Congratulations. Um, it's uh, clearly like the reviews on it have been fantastic. I, uh, I imagine it's doing uh, really well. Uh, incredible that I shouldn't mention for the uh, audience, uh, Jason, uh, 100% of the pre, I think February 17th, correct me if I'm wrong, proceeds um, are going to the Trevor Project. Um, so uh, good on Jason for uh, for that. And check, uh, check the novel out. It's pretty fascinating. Again, especially for someone like myself who, <laughs> I mean, you could not grow up in a more different environment than... Uh, than Jason did. It was a pretty remarkable just sort of exposure to uh, essentially a life that just is, is just not anything I ever came across. Uh, Jason, I really wish you the best of luck uh, with the book and everything else going on with you. And thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Absolutely. Thank you, Richard. My thanks to uh, Jason Kirk for his time and his insights. Check out his book. Previous guests on this podcast include CNBC's Alex Sherman. Uh, we had a number of sports media topics on that. Kenny Smith of TNT, Noah Eagle, 
had a lot of Super Bowl related content, including what it's like to cover the two teams that were in that game. Ray Ferraro and Sean McDonough of ESPN were on this podcast. Paul Feinbaum with ESPN. Head to the archives. There should be some stuff you like. At least I hope so. Want to thank Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. Thanks to everybody at Odyssey for their support. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.